Good morning. It's uh, good to see all seven or eight of you that are here, and uh, I'm assuming other people are online. We, uh, we do miss you. Carrie said my sentiments exactly. It's a lot nicer when everybody's here, and we miss this, but I'm, I'm glad you're tuning in. Uh, over the next 10 weeks, we're going to launch into the book of Revelation. Um, it's not Revelations, it's Revelation. It's one revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, we actually started this book at the beginning or at the end of the I Am series uh, when we looked at, at what it, the vision John had of Jesus in chapter 1. Today we're going to move on to chapter 2 and 3, but before we do that, I want to give you something that we're going to come back to over and over over the next 10 weeks, something that's really important, uh, what I call three rules for the Revelation series, three rules. And it's, it's like I say, we'll come back to this, but these are suggestions, rules, commandments, whatever you want to call them, uh, that I would encourage you to embrace over the next 10 weeks as we work our way through Revelation. First of all, for a moment, let go of your previous idea of what the book of Revelation means. Now, I say for a moment because you can always go back. <laughs> you can always hold on to your ideas of what you think it means but I would just encourage you for a few moments each Sunday just to be open to letting that go and, and exploring something else. Um, it might be different than you think it is. It might be different than I think it is, but sometimes we're so convinced of what we know it is uh, that we need to set that idea loose in order to find another one if there's another one there. We form these mental ruts and we become very predictable. And I've I've done this before, but, but just walk through this with me. I want you, wherever you are, to pick a number between 1 and 10. Don't tell anybody. Pick a number between 1 and 10. You got it? I'm counting on you guys to nod that are here, okay? Uh, multiply that number by 2. Got the new number? Okay. Add 8 to that number. Now take that, divide it by 2. Okay. Now, what I want you to do is take the number that you've got in your head right now and then subtract from that the original number you started with. Be careful with that. You got it? Now, whatever number you've got in your head now, whatever the answer to that subtraction problem was, I want you to, to give it an equivalent letter in the alphabet. One is A, two is B, three is C, et cetera, et cetera. Pick whatever letter your number is equivalent to. You got it? You guys got it. Okay. Now think of a European country that starts with that letter. Got it? And now take the second letter of that country's name. <laughs> take the second letter of the country's name. Got it? And think of an animal that starts with that letter. Now this is the last step. You got the animal? Think of the color of the animal. How many of you are thinking of a gray elephant? <laughs> okay, I had a reaction here. I hope I had a reaction at home. It's, it's a gray elephant. And <laughs> I'm, I, I did that just because I want you to realize people are predictable. We form mental ruts. Now, part of it's the math, and part of it's there's not a whole lot of D countries in Europe. You were played into that, right? But we are predictable, and we, we tend to get into mental ruts, and we tend to stay there. And, and that's why I say for a moment each week or maybe for 30 or 35 minutes, let go of what you think it means and be open to something else. If you disagree with me, welcome to it. Everybody disagrees with me. That's great. But at least for a little while, let's, let's let go and embrace things. And I'll, I'm going to be really honest up front. I'm going to tell you right away, I don't think the left behind 
series of books by Tim LaHaye is a good exegesis of the book of Revelation. In fact, I think it actually does a disservice to the text. Now, you don't have to agree with me on that. Uh, I'm glad it's almost an empty house here because nobody can throw rocks at me. Uh, you can embrace that book if you want, that whole series of books if you want. But what I'm asking each week for just a moment, let it go and let's listen to some other ideas and see. The second rule of reading Revelation is read the text, read it a lot, and read it out loud. It's apocalyptic, it's visual. Reading it out loud, listening to it on BibleGateway.com, something like that will help you. And because there's so much to it, read it a lot. We're going to cover big chunks like today we're reading chapter two and three a lot of material there you need to read it several times throughout the week to get ready and the third rule is this tell someone else what you're seeing hearing thinking or learning about this text we always grasp things better when we share them with other people so in a phone call or an email or a facebook message talk to people about what you're reading okay those are the three rules did it come up underneath down here Reed? is that cool do you guys like that Back home? Yeah, you guys can't answer that because at home they're seeing me and then they're seeing the little outline underneath, which is really cool. Thank you, Reed, for doing that. Uh, context for the book of Revelation. A lot of debate about when it was written. Most people think around 95 AD. There's some people say earlier before the fall of Jerusalem, but we don't really know. We're guessing around 95 AD. John's writing the book. It's a vision he has on the island of Patmos, which is 10 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. There's a Roman rock quarry there where they would send enemies of the state to work to, to send rock back to the Roman Empire. The recipients of the book are the, these, these seven churches in, in uh, Asia Minor. It was passed along to other people as well. And, and while it's being written, as far as we know, the emperor was Domitian, who was a guy who, who did extreme persecution of the church. It, it had been getting worse all along. Like AD 65, persecution started under Nero. It got worse under Vespasian in AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Peter and Paul were crucified. Timothy was murdered. By AD 92 under Domitian, it got really worse. He was incredibly insecure. He, he forced everybody in the, in the Roman Empire to worship him as, quote, Lord and God. He changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Roman Empire. All citizens and subjects had to go to a temple that was built in his honor. Once a year, they had to take a pinch of incense, throw it in the fire, and say, Caesar Curios, which means Caesar is Lord. Now, you can imagine the difficulty if you're a Christian who says Jesus is Lord and what the cost of that would be. A lot of Christians weren't doing Caesar Curios, and they were being persecuted because it was a difficult time. And into this comes the revelation of Jesus, this picture of what's going on underneath the surface. We looked a few weeks ago at chapter 1, this vision of Jesus standing among the lampstands, and now we're going to pick up in chapter 2 and chapter 3 with letters to these seven churches. Now, there's a, there's a slide that you should see that shows the map. These are actual churches, seven different churches in an area that kind of form a circle, um, and, and, and I, that's one of the things I want you to see. This book was not initially written to be future predictions of what might happen. I'm not saying it doesn't speak to the future. But this letter, uh, this book was sent to seven real actual churches. That's one of the reasons I think it's important that it starts with these seven letters. And there are more than seven in this area. There's Lystra and Derby. There are others. But I think it's symbolic of being sent to the church as a whole. And before I actually read the text, I'm going to let you see there's a format in every letter. There are seven letters, but one format.
for everyone. Let me just give you the format and then we'll read through and you can kind of pick it up. They all start with a picture of Jesus drawn from chapter one, a phrase or phrases drawn from that initial vision that John had in chapter one. Next comes the, the picture of the specific church. What's going on in that specific church? He describes what's going on in their location. That's how we know these were intended for specific churches. If you do a more in-depth study of each letter, you realize that they're very location and context specific. Um, he, he, he makes corrections. He encourages. Then in each church, after, after he's done a picture of Jesus and a picture of what's going on in the church, there's a call to overcome. In some of your verses, it will say a call to be victorious. Seven times each church is called to overcome. One of them is different than the other six. You'll see it as we read. The wording is a bit different. And if, if you remember, we've talked about Jewish writing. A lot of times there's these structures where the first echoes the last and the second echoes the next to the last and the third echoes the next to next to the last and the heart of it is in the middle. And the middle overcome in these seven, church number four, is different. And we'll get back to that. That's really where the whole sermon's driving today. After the, the, they're called to overcome, they say if they do overcome, if they are victorious, there's a blessing promised. And there's seven different blessings for the seven different churches. They'll all show up in our last two weeks of the sermons. And 10 weeks from now, you'll realize that all these blessings come to fruition at the end of the book. And every church has what I call a listen up phrase. He who has ears, let him hear. Just like Jesus said in the gospel. So I, as I read through it, I, I want you to look for those patterns. I'll help you with the first one, and then we'll go from there, okay? Carrie took my notes. Did you take my notes? That's okay. There's one little piece. I don't need it, Carrie. That's quite all right. I'll, whip it. I'll, I'll, I'll wing it and do it. Starting with Revelation chapter 2, and the first one I'm going to help you. Remember, it starts first with a picture of Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's the picture from chapter one. Next, he's going to talk about what's happening at the church. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. There's that phrase, that wake, listen up phrase. What the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, there's the overcome, and here comes the promise. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel in the church of Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the church in Pergamum, to the angel in the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. 
You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, who have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. 
I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Large chunks of text. Um, because we're only taking 10 weeks, typically it's taken about 26 weeks to get through the book of Revelation. We're going to cover large chunks, and we're not, there's, there's a ton in each one of those. There's so many symbolic things. There's so many things that apply directly to their context, but we're just not, we're going to look at the big picture viewpoint. Because these seven churches seem to cover the whole spectrum of what the church across the world is like today. Wealthy churches who look great, but from God's perspective are spiritually poor. Churches who are suffering greatly. Churches who are lukewarm. Churches who struggle to hold correct doctrine, but forget to live in the love of God. You know, I've often heard there are no perfect churches, and the same was true 2,000 years ago. But what I want us to hone in on, big picture, all seven, what was Jesus saying to them? What's he saying? He has a message for these seven churches. And through what he says to them, we can actually hear what he says to us in the middle of our situation right now. They were a church in crisis. Many of them were suffering. Many were poor. And he wants them to know, first of all, that he is here. He says, I'm here and I'm not blind to what is happening. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, where was Jesus? When John first saw him, it says, he, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And in 120, he says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The thing Jesus wants people to know is that he is with them. They're thinking, where is God as we're dying under the hand of Rome? He's right here. It's a question people ask today, right? Especially when times are tough. Where is God in all of this? The word apocalypse, which is the Greek word for revelation, means an unveiling. And, and what, what's happening here is, is John is getting a vision of what's going on. He's unveiling what is happening underneath the reality that people see. They're seeing themselves suffering and dying, and the revelation of Jesus is that even though it feels like he's gone, he is with us. These are good words in, in time of a, of a COVID pandemic, when there's fear, when there's uncertainty, when there's economic anxiety, when we're feeling the pain of separation from each other. We are not alone. He's standing among his church. And not only that, but he knows what's happening. In every letter, he says, I know what's going on. In, in two, chapter 2, verse 2, Ephesus, I know your deeds. 2, verse 9, Smyrna, I know your suffering. 2, 13, in Pergamum, I know where you live. I know what it's like. I know the context. In 2, 19, in Thyatira, I know your deeds. The same in, in Sardis and in Philadelphia and Laodicea. I know your deeds. See, a lot of times when we're in the middle of a struggle, when things look like they're not working, the question is, Okay, he's with me, but does he even know what I'm going through? Two questions that people always ask in the middle of suffering. Where is God, and does he have a sense of what I'm going through? 
I've, I've dealt with those throughout my whole career as a pastor. When, when there's a death of someone close to you, of, of someone young, an unexpected death, when there's a struggle that seems like never end, when there's a cancer diagnosis, when there's uncertainty, now when there's fears that come from a pandemic about personal fears, right? Am I going to get sick? Is it, what's it going to do to me or the people that I love? About work and your economic situation, about the future. Can we ever bounce back from this? Does God really understand? And he says he does. He says he's with us. And sometimes, we said that last week, remember that, that, that it's, it's the power of, of a relationship. In the middle of suffering, we can handle the suffering if we just know we're not alone and that someone knows what we're going through. And that's what he's saying to these churches. He's with them. He knows what's happening, but he also knows their differences. There are no perfect churches, right? We have this problem with churches that they're made up of human beings. And if they would stop being made up of human beings, maybe we could get to having a perfect church. People tell me all the time, oh, the church hurt my feelings. And, you know, the church shouldn't do that. And you're right. <laughs> shouldn't. But get used to it. That's, that's just reality. Church is made up of human beings, just as it was 2,000 years ago. You look at these churches, some are faithful, some are not. Ephesus is faithful in their doctrine, but they've lost their first love. Pergamum, it says they're faithful to the death. They'll die for their faith, but then they tolerate heresy. Thyatira, you're getting better, he says, but you're really, there's nothing really to write home about there. Sardis, you have a reputation for being alive. Everybody thinks you're doing great, but you're dead. Some are wealthy, some are not. Laodicea seems to be wealthy. Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 9, I see your afflictions and your poverty. I remember early on my very first sabbatical, we, we went down south and lived in Alabama for, for three months. One of the churches we went to, uh, the Sunday we were there, they opened an $8 million children's wing. Eight million, and this was 15 years ago, 14 years ago. And I remember we walked through it. It was like unbelievable. It was, it was the, the, the tile floor had stars like the Hollywood star, and they had names of biblical heroes, and it was all animated. There was a slide. When kids went to junior church, they went, and they went down a circular slide and landed in the church. Unbelievable, the expense of this place. Wealthy, wealthy, wealthy church. Well, we also see poor churches, people that don't have any money, churches especially now that are really struggling. Mega church in Saskatchewan, I heard about this week, they have a brand new huge building, they have 30 people on staff, in order to pay their mortgage they had to lay off all 30 staff members, right? Wealthy, poor, some are suffering, Smyrna, Pergamum, Philadelphia seem to be suffering, Ephesus, Sardis, and Laodicea, not so much, their life is not as hard. Just like we see today, church in Canada is not, we're not suffering really. Church in North Korea, yes they are. See, these seven churches are just like us. But the important thing to realize, and this is where we're going to hone in on, on, you know, you're saying, Jeff, you've been talking forever. Why are you just getting to your point? Here's the point. The call to all is to overcome. Seven churches, seven times they're called to overcome. And overcoming is a good thing, right? Dictionary.com says it's to get the better of another in a struggle or a conflict, to conquer or defeat. To overcome means to win. It means getting the victory over those who would seek to destroy you. Now, it sounds great, overcoming. 
I'm getting some faces up there. Are we doing okay? Jake, can you hear me? We've lost the Facebook feed, so we'll stop for a minute. We're going to stop. When did we lose it? You're still hearing me there. Hi, everybody. YouTube's still good. Okay, YouTube. Glad to have you YouTubers out there with us. We're going to let people. Just tell me when we're back live and we'll start again. We'll start back at the call to all this to overcome. Isn't this fun? <laughs> a Jewish rabbi, a Catholic priest, and a... <laughs> just, just kidding. We're not going to go there. I do want you to know that I have a clock here, and this is not counting toward the time of the sermon, just so you know. Are we good yet, Reed, do you think? I'll have a drink of water. We're up again. Okay. All right, so we're going to be back at the call to all is to overcome. There's these seven churches, and seven times they're called to overcome. And we said overcoming is a good thing. It's winning, it's victory, it's conquering. And it sounds great until you look at how Jesus defines overcoming and how do we define that word. You know, I've talked about that Jewish literary st um, structure, a chiastic structure where they, they build to the middle. And then all seven of those overcomes, they're, they're all similar except for the mere, very middle one. And I think the middle one is different because John is trying to say this is what overcoming looks like look just look in your text real quick 2 verse 7 to him who overcomes then the promise 2 verse 11 um, he who overcomes then the promise 2 17 uh, to him who overcomes and then the promise then 2 26 which is the middle one to him who overcomes and does my will to the end then if you go 3.5, 3.12, and 3.21, again, it's all to him who overcomes and the promise. The only one different is that 2.26, the middle one. He who overcomes and keeps my will to the end. Now, here's, here's the issue. And I always hate to critique translations. But the NIV totally blows the translation in that verse. Him who keeps my will, says the NIV. If you have any other translation... It says, he who keeps my works, or he who keeps my deeds. The Greek word is ergon, and it means deeds or actions. So if you read it, in fact, that, that, that word is, is in two, chapter 2, verse 2, I know your deeds. Chapter 2, verse 19, I know your deeds. 3, 1, 7, and 15, I know your deeds. Every time it's the same Greek word, but for some reason the NIV decides when the same Greek word is used in the same grammatical construction in 2.26 to call it the will of God. And that just doesn't say much to us. Who keeps my will? What it actually is saying is, to him who overcomes, to the one who keeps my deeds, who does what I do. And I think that's the way that he's defining what it means to overcome. And when you think about the context, many who are reading this that are dying and suffering, many who are poor, and even those who aren't poor are struggling. But the goal, the goal to overcome, overcome does not necessarily mean to win. 
The poor churches don't need to build successful and wealthy churches. The goal is to go through whatever comes our way by keeping the deeds of Jesus, by living as he would live. That only makes sense because we know theologically and scripturally the church is the body of Christ. We're the visible representation of Jesus in the world. The reason that the church at this point needed a revelation of Jesus Christ was to be reminded what he actually looks like and how he actually lives and what it means to overcome by imitating him. The heart of the book, the whole book, is built in that same structure where the middle is the core of it. And in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, is the next time after these seven, you see it seven churches in a row, that word overcome, and then you don't see it again until chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him. How? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Three things, the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Three things just like Jesus, who shed his blood for us, who spoke the truth to us, and who did not love his life so much as to shrink from death. See, Jesus is so radically different than anyone else, and his kingdom is so radically different than the way we do things. You know, for us, overcoming is to defeat or to destroy, to have visible success. But he says overcoming is to keep his deeds to the very end, even to the point of brokenness and death, to live like Jesus would live. Because out of that, he'll bring life. And the same is so true today in this COVID crisis. Do you realize that we can overcome by keeping the deeds of Jesus, no matter what happens, even if we die, if we die the way Jesus would die, we overcome. That's, that's the thing. He wants us to keep his deeds and his actions. He wants us to imitate him. He is what we need to see and to be. And it's not up to just one or two of us to play this because we're all in this together. We're, we're all the body of Christ. So the way we live together needs to imitate the deeds of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ. In all our differentness and weirdness, wealthy churches, poor churches, smart churches, not so smart churches, extroverted, introverted, faithful and unfaithful, we are the body and there's something beautiful about just being honest about the fact that we're all different and we all have our imperfections. Do you realize that every church that was written a letter got to hear the letters written to every other church? How would you like someone, Jesus, to write you a personal letter and then we read it out in front of everybody in church about your, what you're doing well and what you're not doing well and what you, how you can... There, there's a freedom in that because it's saying we're all in this. We're all sometimes really good and sometimes really bad, but the, the, the call is to be obedient to what Jesus would do in these situations. We need each other. And the only way we can actually live out being the body of Christ is realizing... Back to those first ideas, he is with us and he knows us. Chapter 1, verse 13, And among the lampstands, among the churches, was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. In the midst of our weaknesses, 
and strength. In the midst of our tiredness and our joy, he is with us and he knows us. And yet he still shows up. And he calls us to overcome, which means we need to carefully define success. As we walk through this COVID crisis as a church and as individuals, we need to be careful how we define success. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 13, each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. What does it mean to be a successful church in a time of COVID? Is it numbers? I, I saw a pastor in our fellowship this week posted the question, my online views are up like triple what our Sunday attendance is now that we're doing something online. Does that mean our church is growing? And I, let me just tell you my personal opinion. Churches don't grow spiritually. Churches grow numerically. People grow spiritually. They do it together, right? And so I don't care if you've got 1,000 people tuning into our service. We're having our online views are way up too. We're like 500 or something. And unless I've been counting wrong, we've never had 500 people on a Sunday morning in here, right? But, but it doesn't matter how many people watch the service. What matters is, are we actually growing? Are we actually doing the things that Jesus would do if he lived in hope during the COVID crisis? See, numerical growth and spiritual growth can coexist, but they don't necessarily always function equally. Is it money? Is it buildings? Is it doctor? What is it? What is it that makes us successful? Jesus says if we're going to overcome, it's keeping his deeds until the end. It's people who look like Jesus, who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb, who realize that he's forgiven them. He's, he's transformed them. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we're deeply loved by God. We've over, we can overcome because of that. I can die at any minute because I'm forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. I don't have to build myself up. I don't have to succeed in the, world, in the world's perspective. They overcome by the blood of the Lamb. They overcome by the word of their testimony. We give our lives to reflecting Jesus in our words and in our actions. We're saying the truth to people. We're living that out. And we do not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. We want to be like him, even when no one gets it, even when it costs. I'm going I'm to close with two pictures. The first is a picture from Wadi Rum, the desert that Angela and I drove through. And, and we drove through in a Jeep with this guy, Mohammed, who we loved. Uh, but there are some places where the tire tracks, the ruts, the picture, I wish you guys here could see it, there's just these huge ruts, and once you get in them, sometimes you have to really fight to get out of them, right? And I've, I've been told, this is not a real sign, but I've been told that one time there was a, a sign at the junction of the Alaska Highway that said, choose your rut carefully, you're going to be in it for the next 50 miles. And, and, and I guess my question is, if we're going to define overcoming, if we're going to choose a rut to be in, Let's make sure we choose it carefully. Let's make sure that overcoming for us as individuals and as a corporate church and as believers who live in hope is the rut that says overcoming is living and acting like Jesus. That, that no matter what the world tries to take away from us, we will overcome because we're just obeying and living the way he did, knowing that the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and not loving our life so much as to shrink from death are the things that will enable us to overcome. Will we choose to seek to win by the way the world defines it? Will that be our rut? Or will we overcome by holding his deeds 
until the end? Will we live as Jesus would live in the time of a pandemic? Because you see, if that's the rut we choose, we cannot lose. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for these letters. There's so much in there. I feel like we just have skipped over so much. But we just want to hear that reminder that you are with us, that you understand what we're going through. And, and sometimes it, it feels veiled. It feels like it needs to be revealed because it, it, it's not clear. It's not something we see clearly. So help us as we work our way through this revelation of Jesus Christ to see things as they are, not as they seem to be. Help us to, to remember that what it means to overcome is to follow your example, to live life as you would live, and, and, and empower us for that by the, by the blood that you shed for us, by your Holy Spirit living in us, by the, by the peace that you give to us when circumstances around us don't look peaceful at all. Enable us to overcome and to receive the rewards that each of these churches were promised for their overcoming. Enable us to be faithful as we trust that you are with us, that you will not leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love each of those seven promises. I want to read the first one and the last one to you as we close. In, to the church at Ephesus, he says, to, to the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Imagine that, eating from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And, and the church at Laodicea, who wasn't doing really well, he says at the end, to the one who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not to sit beside him. It actually says, to, to the one who overcomes, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What, a, what an amazing picture. And, and my hope for you is that you will hear that, that this week, even when you're losing, even when things are falling apart, even in the struggle, that you'll realize that the overcome is not to defeat the struggle. The overcoming is not to, to fix your financial picture. It's not to make everybody like you. It's not to have everything all together. The overcoming is to live in the middle of the chaos with the heart and spirit and mind of Jesus, to act the way he would act in that situation, to trust him enough in the chaos to rest and let him live through you. That's what overcoming is, and that's my prayer for you this week. Amen.